is the Australian Rescue Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Australian Rescue Podcast. My name's Steve Monroe and uh, this is the very first episode um, and you are in for a real treat today. Uh, we're going to hear from Chief Inspector Gary Raymond, um, APM, OAM, who's retired with a uh, dip vet as well. Uh, he's an officer of the Sydney Police Rescue Team. It's a gripping episode and uh, you are going to hear a range of topics come through where we're going to learn a quick history about Gary's volunteer and career life as a first aider, ambulance officer and then before finally joining the New South Wales Police Rescue Team in Sydney. Now, while Gary has attended thousands of jobs in his career, this particular episode is going to focus on his experience at the Granville train disaster. So uh, even though it was 40 years ago, Gary's memory is still very sharp and uh, you'll be able to hear details uh, about what it was like, uh, like as though it happened last week almost. Uh, we're going to hear some technical details as well as some historic themes. You'll also hear as well, uh, quite surprisingly, of Gary's faith as well, of uh, how evident it is to him. And while it's not scary to listen to as well, I thought very important to still include it in his story of how his life all fits together, including his faith. So while we're going to have a little bit of God talk in there as well, you're going to hear some great stories from Gary of how he's also kept in contact with some of the people he's rescued and the outcomes that they've had in life as well. So while Gary is currently retired, it's not surprising that Gary is also a chaplain in the uh, police force post-trauma uh, support groups in New South Wales. So, look, I hope you will enjoy this first episode of the Australian Rescue Podcast. Sit back, relax, and um, enjoy. My guest today is uh, Chief Inspector Gary Raymond. Now, Gary, you've got a whole bunch of letters after your name, APM, OAM, uh, retired, um, a dip vet as well, which basically means that you sound very experienced in a lot of areas, particularly in the police force industry. Yeah, look, Steve, uh, good to be with you and, and your listeners. Um, it all kicked off when I was about four years old. I was in a bus with my mum and the bus came to a sudden halt because a car had hit a fellow on a motorbike in front of us and so the bus couldn't proceed past. And... Uh, I looked out, stared out the window, like everyone did on the bus, and I saw some police officers arrive, and they uh, rushed over to the gentleman and started doing first aid, and while the ambulance was on the way, this was in Newcastle, where I was brought up, and I remember staring at this, these police officers, or cops as we like to be called, just helping this, this injured man. And something happened in my heart at that time and my mum turned around, saw me looking out the window and in a protective manner said, get on the other side of the bus, don't look. <laughs> so I went up the back of the bus and behind some other adults and I took another position where I could see from the window. And then the ambulance turned up from Hamilton Ambulance Station and they treated this bloke, put him on the stretcher and put him in the back of the ambulance and I remember... The ambulance officer was by himself and a police officer drove the ambulance away when the, the ambulance officer was in the back. So I, I just was mesmerised 
by what they did. And I I remember it. I was only four, but it was such an impact. And and when I got home with my mum that day, I said to my dad, I said, I want to be an ambulance man or a policeman. And he looked at me and he looked at mum and said, where'd you get that from? And she said, oh, he was looking out the window of the bus and a fella got hit, you know, off a motorbike by a car. Mm. And that just okay. seeded something in me. So around age nine, I joined St. John Ambulance as a cadet and I, yep. I learnt first aid. And I remember being fascinated by the anatomy and physiology of the human body and and that, learning knowledge of first aid was, was good. And I went to football matches and carnivals and, and Jim Carnes uh, with a senior person um, doing first aid on injured people. And around age 12... I joined the Australian Navy Cadets, and I was still in St John as well, but um, there I became a medic in the Cadets for the Navy, and uh, and I just loved helping people, and I didn't feel uncomfortable at all. And then when I was 16, I left home and came to Sydney and joined the New South Wales Ambulance Service Cadet Training Program, which we did two years solid at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, and then... I graduated, and you're going to believe this, I was in charge of an ambulance doing trauma calls, mm. delivering babies, people with heart attacks, aged 18. No way. That's, yeah, that's 18, insane. In charge of a, what we, you know, a trauma ambulance and, uh, and down in Sydney. And, and then I worked alongside on different calls. The police rescue squad turned up. Mm. And one day, one of the sergeants, uh, Ray Tyson, said to me, hey, listen, we could use your expertise in police rescue. Why don't you leave the ambos and join the cops and come and work with us? Mm-hmm. And so I did. And that started uh, the most amazing career that I've ever had. And uh, what year was that? Yeah, that was... Um, I joined the police when I was about 21, which was uh, 1971. Or actually, it was 72. It was in the March of 1972. I joined the police age 21. Mm, yeah. Wow. Because I was looking at uh, your career, I guess, and um, from, from joining the police rescue in, in 72, 71, whenever it was, you have been to numerous events, I guess pretty much all the major ones that anybody can even think of. And, you know, it comes to the tip of mind, I guess, um, you know, a Luna Park ghost train fire the Newcastle earthquake. You're involved in Cyclone Larry as well. You you did New Zealand um, in Christchurch, as as well as uh, the Granville train disaster as well. I mean, you've you've pretty much covered the majority or huge amount of Australian disasters these days um, in in living memory, um, just from joining Police Rescue. Yeah, you're right too. Um, it's amazing that uh, yeah the major incidents that I've attended, as you say, yeah. Uh, and one extra one there was the Hilton Hotel bombing. And mm. uh, there was a Christmas Day Savoy Hotel fire at King's Cross. There was uh, 15 died there. And uh, the, with the Hilton, there was three dead, a police officer and two garbage operators, garbage truck operators, and seven were wounded. And uh, lots and lots of things. The Threadbow disaster where 18 died there. And remember, Stuart Diver was rescued there. And... And so, yeah, the, these major incidents have really um, tested me. But with the training experience that I've had over the years, um, and this sounds funny, people are going to really wonder about this comment. 
because of my high level of training and experience, I actually feel comfortable in a crisis. Whether it's a car crash or a, a major disaster, I feel comfortable because I know exactly what I'm doing, uh, how I'm going to do it and when I'm going to do it. And so, again, people will find that a bit strange, but that's what happens when you are a specialist in what you do, Steve. Yeah, exactly. Well, I will be touching, hopefully, on uh, PTSD and uh, various other things of what has happened in the aftermath of you know various events, how you help people as well um, in the future. But as you say, yeah, it, it does come down to training, but I also think it comes down to a personality type as well of being able to, you know, a good coping mechanism you know, whether we use humour or, or, or whatever, um, clearly you, you seem to have that kind of thing under control, which is great to hear. Now, I'd like to touch base today, um, particularly on the Granville train disaster. Um, nearly 41 years ago, on January 18th, 1977, a Tuesday morning at 10 past eight in the morning, there was a big train crash. Um, they killed 88 or 80, 84 people or, or so, a lot of people. Um, you were there. Um, tell us what happened because, well, if you were responding from the police rescue headquarters... Uh, Redfern. We were at stationed at the old police academy in Redfern, at Burke Street, Redfern at that time. Right. So how long did it take for you to get there? Because I was looking at... You know, it could be half an hour at least in Sydney peak hour. What was going through your mind? Well, we activated our lights and sirens, of course. And uh, But the thing that stuck out was uh, we got a message that a bridge had fallen on a train and uh, we didn't have any details. And then uh, the late um, Dick Lamb, who was one of the police rescue guys that I work with, he was off duty, but he was in the vicinity and, and so almost was on top of the whole thing. So he got out of his car and his short singlet and thongs and uh, went down there and started to help people. But we were on the way. But what really stood out was on the way, we were listening to the police radio traffic and, uh, and they were saying, oh, there's two people injured. And they're saying, rescue one, what's your ETA? We believe people might be trapped. And they said, oh, there's, you know, seven people injured, 10 people injured, 15, 20, 30, 40. And the numbers kept rising as we're on the way. And, yeah, we took about, I think it was about oh, 20 minutes or something, 25 minutes to get out there. But each minute the numbers were rising and I looked at Bill Fay, he was my sergeant, we're in the big truck together. If you look at aerial photos of the Granville train disaster, there's a big rescue truck on the northern side of the Parramatta Road side, and that was uh, what I turned up with Bill Fay. But we so just two up. Yeah, we're just two up, and then other units are on the way. Uh, we worked two up with the vehicles, but then we all would meet together, and mm. I, we were looking at each other as the numbers are rising. You said, "Wow, that's an interesting another one, more." And by the time we got there, the numbers were around. I think about. Um, a hundred injured. So we got wow. out of the truck and we walked to the culvert and we looked down and saw um, the bridge down on carriages uh, three and four. And what happened, just to, uh, I guess, remind people, uh, on that morning the train was coming from the mountains 
and stopped at Parramatta and then was heading for the city. And keep in mind, it was during school holidays, so we had people going to work, and most of them caught that train every day. And we had a heap of other people going down to Circular Quay to, to go across on the Manly Ferry or to go around the Opera House or, you know, just doing school holiday day trips. And when we came to the edge of the culvert, we looked down and we now know there was 213 people injured. And I said to the sergeant, I said, where do we start here? He said, don't worry about them. He said, the ambulance, police and nurse, uh, ambulance, nurses and, and uh, doctors will look at them. And we now know, as I mentioned, there was 213 of them all over the railway tracks, some standing, some sitting, um, some lying, some conscious, some screaming, some unconscious, all different ages and men and women, boys and girls. And he said to me, he looked at me, he said, Gaz, don't worry about them. I want you climb down there, get in those carriages under that bridge and tell me what we've got. Now, in mm-hmm. police and military terms, Steve, that's called a reconnaissance. Yeah. And what we do is... Uh, we go into the situation and we report back to our senior officers uh, how many injured, how many had lost their lives, what sort of equipment we would need, uh, the, the sorting of the casualties or triage as we call it, uh, the worst looking after them first and so on. Mm. And so I got down, climbed down on a rope to the railway tracks and went along. And when I started to burrow in there underneath the bridge... Keep in mind, too, that from the floor of the train to the roof where the bridge was on top of the carriages was about oh, a metre, a metre and a half, if that, yep. and a bit lower in some other places. And I had to crawl then through those dear people that lost their lives. I'd crawl between them, beside them, on top of them to reach those who were deeply embedded and trapped inside. And uh, I remember we counted around 80 people that lost their lives immediately. Mm. There was nothing we could do. And three died later in hospital, although you were right when you said 84 because we found some recent records where one of those dear ladies that lost their lives under there was, in fact, pregnant. And so we've added a little bubby to that score. So I crawled through and I identified around 10 people who trapped and alive and reported. I stayed in there but got word out. I'll tell you the funny thing too was um, there was a, a fellow in there who had shorts on and a singlet and he crawled in from the outside and he had thongs and he was helping to clear the debris around the injured. And when I saw him, he saw me and of course and it was a bit pretty dark but we had little pen torches I did, Mm. and I noticed that he was covered in tattoos, but they weren't the tattoos that you get down the shop down the road. They were jail tattoos. Uh, So he'd been lengthy time in jail, I could tell by looking at him and his tattoos, because they're different than the ones you get commercially done. And he he saw me looking, and he he recognised that I knew that he'd been a crim. (laughs) <laughs> and he said, hey, it's all right, cop. He said, uh, another time and place, he said, we'd been to fisticuffs. <laughs> he said, but I want to work with you now. I want to be your mate and, and help these people. I said, and I tapped him on the shoulder and said, come on, mate. 
Let's do it. Yeah. So there was a cop and a crim for getting our roles in life, I suppose you could say, and working together and then finally more rescue and ambulance and turned up and then he he had to uh, to leave. Uh, I, I've never never seen him since. So I'd love to meet up with him and uh, I guess thank him for his first response, as we call it. But And so I was in there doing that. That's uh, the beginning of it. Well, I was just doing the maths. Uh, you were 26 years old climbing between... Carriages, bodies, things like that. Yeah, I think uh, 27, I think. That's pretty young. Yeah, look, um, it was too, Steve. And uh, to see, I guess to be frank, to see 80 people at once who have lost their lives and uh, and, and certainly in a, in a terrible situation like that uh, was not daunting, but we certainly needed to work out how we were going to get those who are alive and trapped in the middle of this, out through the carnage, if you like. And so we had to then, I guess, formulate a rescue plan and formulate who was going to be treated first. We had um, what we call the crush syndrome. Ten people roughly had the crush syndrome. Now, for those listeners of yours, Steve, that don't know what that is, when muscles, what we call skeletal muscle, that is muscles on your skeleton like particularly the arms and legs, on the legs because their big muscles get compressed or squashed, they start to, the, the cells have been broken open and it causes uh, some chemicals to go from within the cells into the circulation. You might get, even that stops the bleeding while the pressure's on, while the weight's on. But if, you, if they've been there a while and you take it off too suddenly, uh, you often read in the newspapers that oh, people were trapped and then released and died. And what happens is these chemicals get into the bloodstream if you release too quickly and uh, cause the heart to go into all sorts of different rhythms, dangerous ones, and clogs the kidneys up. And it causes a general biochemical catastrophe in the body. So what you've got to do, particularly as I mentioned, I've been trapped there for a while, we leave them trapped and then we, the medics come in, the doctors, nurses and, and, and paramedics. They stabilise the patient first and then we gradually, very carefully, over a period of time, lift the weight off so that those things are compensated for. Now, we had 10 people in that position. So that's a very heavy medical resource to look after. That. It's like having an intensive care underneath the bridge in the carriages and we've got, to, we've got to treat 10 people in a sort of an entrapped intensive care. Yeah, because I was uh, curious about how that was going to happen because, um, mm. I mean, we're talking 40 years ago. Mm. How much of uh, the use of, I mean, medicine has come a long way since then, but, you know, the likes of ketamine and various other IV drugs and things, mm. um, you know, even saline and various other sorts of things, how much pre-hospital care was actually happening at that time? We'd heard about crush syndrome because um, they first identified it during World War II in the Blitz in London where people were, after the bombings, were trapped by the limbs and then people had come along, uh, you know, sometime later and released the pressure and they'd die. And so they identified mm. that releasing someone too prematurely was was a, a, a difficulty. So, and so we knew about it. We actually... Uh, 
in our training course at Police Rescue, did a module on the crush syndrome. Because as a rescue squad, and same as our other mates from the fire brigade and ambulance and SCS and RFS and all those uh, other wonderful bodies, the VRA, the volunteer rescue, we've learnt over the years that um, dealing with crushed and trapped people all the time, that this was an issue. So it was recognised at Granville and treated accordingly. And uh, and yes, there was uh, local and systemic anaesthesia used, pain relief and so on. We certainly didn't have what we've got today. But we had enough to, to do a good job in those days as well. Yeah, okay then. Um, well, what it, being being a, um, a mass casualty event, you did mention before triage and things, the use of the triage cars, you know, the yellow, green, red, black kind of system, was that in implemented at any stage or were you just, that was not your thing and you were just like, okay, we've got people in the train, uh, got to go and, you know, this is, this is my job, I've got to get them out of the train uh, versus doing a triage. Yeah, what you're referring to is what we call the DVI, the Disaster Victim Identification. Um, mostly used, that uh, we certainly used uh, the card system, but mainly for those who lost their lives. And uh, once they were pronounced um, dead, then they were carted up uh, as we do normally. But because they were in such a confined, short space, um, the cards weren't necessary because we were treating them all simultaneously. Where in those cards, you know, for the walking casualties, the unconscious, the recess, uh, mainly yeah. in something which is scattered over a fairly uh, large area, uh, where you may have to then go through and do a reconnaissance. It might take you a while, and then you put a card on the various. I'll give you a good example at Granville. So if we when I climbed yeah. down the rope, I was walking over to the, the bench where to, to climb into the carriages and I saw a firefighter comforting a screaming woman. She was screaming and crying. And, uh, and I looked behind him a few metres and there was a fellow unconscious on his back. And I just stopped and I said, listen, mate, don't worry about her. Leave her. She's breathing. She's okay. Look behind you. That fellow needs to be put in the recovery position. He's unconscious and you need to maintain his airway. And uh, and so he sort of looked at me and said, go on, go on, leave her, go over there. So that's triage where you, uh, obviously someone is screaming and crying or breathing and they're, yeah, they've got a patent airway, yeah. their airway's nice and open. And yeah. yeah, sure, they might have injuries, but yet the other bloke could um, drown or aspirate on his own vomitous blood or... It's just the mere fact that his head was down and his jaw flopped blocks the airway. And so you have to uh, open the airway and then get them in the recovery position, keeping the spine, particularly the neck, nice and straight and immobilised so that in case you need to uh, drain the patient, you can do that. So that's triage. That's uh, sorting out who needs to be treated first and last. Yeah, no, I was just curious on how much uh, had to be done there. It just, but it seems like it was um, your focus was probably more on actually getting into the train um, and, and doing the real rescue, which leads me to the the question. I mean, I'm I'm looking at the photos of the the disaster here because basically a train came through derailed because of um, bad maintenance on the track. Apparently, is the the official answer. Um, the train clipped the bridge. 
the bridge fell down and squashed the train. Now we're talking old train carriages um, of construction type timber, I believe. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, you, your sergeant, I think it was Bill, you said, um, you know, what do you do? You get there and you say, okay, empty the truck. What kind of gear did you have to get out to actually start going in uh, to get these people out? When we looked through the carriages, and it didn't take us long because um, there were roughly about 10 people that were injured and still alive. And then we looked at the mechanism in which they were trapped. We had to make sure their airway, breathing and circulation, of course, and any bleeding and, and try and arrest that, which we did. And so you look at the types of materials and I'll tell you what was amazing there. We had like a row of, um, reminds me of ants, ants from a nest to a food source where they sort of um, uh, running along and, and passing things between each other. I was in there and at one stage I wanted a wood chisel and a, and a rubber hammer. And so I turned around to the young mm. police officer beside me. I said, mate, I want a wood chisel. And I want a rubber hammer, please. So he turned around and went, wood chisel, rubber hammer, wood chisel, rubber hammer, wood chisel, and this went right up the line to the truck. And they got the, yeah. any tool well, we wanted, like it could have been hydraulic spreaders or, or, or a saw, whatever it was. And then I'd hear, rubber, rubber hammer, rubber hammer, here we are, chisel, wood chisel, rubber hammer, here you are, guys. Thank you. And I was chipping away some of the timber and uh, it wasn't easy because as you say though that era of carriage was made up of um, the seats were sort of um, cast steel and uh, very tough and very splintered if you broke it the roof was sort of timber with a tar between the layers like plywood and so you couldn't use mechanical saws the friction would cause heat which would stick the blades in the hot material between the laminate and so oh, a lot of, of what we were doing was yeah. by hand and uh, and little things like I came across one lady and she was compressed to the seat at the front of her and she said, oh, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. So I just got my pocket knife out and I cut down the side of the seat in front, down her seat, down the side, pulled out the stuffing, like the cushioning and the springs in the seat and that flattened it a couple of inches at the front and a couple of inches at the back. And that gave her ample room to expand her chest wall to breathe. And she said, oh, thank God for that. She said, now, oh, that's better. That's better. So, number one, she's now breathing properly and she's conscious. So we just comforted her and then moved on to others that might have been in urgent need of other medical uh, interventions. So... They're little things that you do. You you assess the situation. You work out what tools you need. And you work out the safety and factor of all of that, and then you go ahead and do it. Mm. So we're we using the old Anapac uh, portable hydraulics and things, or is it the day of um, petrol-driven ones? No, using the hydraulics with pumps. Hand, hand and, pumps uh, and things. Listeners that, yeah, yep, yep. yeah, mainly hydraulic oil. Um, for those listeners, there's a pump with oil in it. And it pushes the oil through a hose to the big jaws and uh, jacks. So we get jacks that open and close. And, and it's interesting, too, that we always carried in police rescue a torch 
and a pocket knife. Now, the little pen torches we carry because, unlike everybody else, even during at midday, on a sunny day, we could end up in somewhere dark, mm. like under a house, in a ceiling, um, in a drain pipe, um, in a factory, under a machine. We could end up anywhere, so we always had a torch. And so we, that was very handy because when we crawled in, we had a light source and we used it. But um, And so, yeah, the hydraulic gear was used to great effect and um, we were able to use, they were hand pumps. But I'll tell you what happened, Steve, and you as an emergency services worker might appreciate this one with the listeners. Mm. A lot of our gear, like the hydraulic Jackson spreaders, were not compatible with ambulance gear or firefighters gear. That's they had different couplings. And one of the things we've done in this day and age, we learned out of Granville is to have gear that's compatible so that we could use and each other's gear and hoses and, and all sorts of things and to to make sure that we could inter I guess interuse the equipment. Yeah, okay. So would that have been say Hearst, Lucas, Olmatro, any of those brands in particular? Yeah, all of those brands now are fairly well interchangeable, but um, and some of it's not, of course. But they have got the kits, the kits that are compatible with all the different tools fitting onto the one motor, and that comes in handy too. So you can use, you know, anyone's gear as we're familiar. But mm. I'll tell you um, something that happened which was amazing. When I you talk, I always um, say this is like a a mess turning into a miracle. I was crawling through the carriage when I first got there, sorting out who who was alive and who wasn't. And an ambulance officer came in beside me. And as we were crawling through, we developed this little system of come across somebody, thumbs up, you know, praise the Lord they're still alive, or if they weren't, thumbs down. And we came across a young lady called... Debbie Scow. Now, Debbie was uh, very tall, blondy, brown eyes. She was a public servant with the police department and she'd actually been accepted into the police academy to join to be a police officer. She would have, uh, she was due to start in the March of that year. This was the January. Now, we came across her and the the ambulance officer thumbs down. Mm. Now, in police rescue and uh, I guess all rescue squads, we're taught to cross-check everybody's gear, especially vertical rescue where you're going, say, up a tower or down a cliff or in a shaft or whatever. When you're doing vertical rescue, you double-check each other's gear. And I double-checked Debbie. But in fact, I found she was not dead. She had a carotid pulse, which was very rapid, weak, but she wasn't breathing because she was... Uh, the, the train came in and crushed her into a little ball and her face was actually squashed on her chest. And so she was in that configuration and she, just before we arrived, stopped breathing. I knew what I had to do and uh, everyone out there listening knows the ABC, airway breathing circulation, and I knew that her airway is being, you know, really blocked by her posture. And I knew what I had to do, so I reached into the little space she was there and I held my breath and I gripped my teeth and I said, 
God, please help me. And I meant God, God Almighty, my beautiful, beautiful Heavenly Father, please help me. Mm. Because this was a situation that was getting beyond our capacity to help. And so with that, as I reached in, I got hold of her head and I sort of turned it to the side and tried to keep it nice and straight if I could. But I bent her head backwards into the curvature of her cervical spine, that is the neck vertebra, and I tilted the head back and I lifted the jaw forward off the airway. And I just held it there. Now, just pausing for a minute, Steve, a lot of your listeners might say, um, I don't know if anyone said it to you, but, oh, you must see some terrible things doing your rescue work. Yeah, that's one of the questions people say. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, remind me of some of the worst things I've ever seen. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, no one has ever asked me, hey, listen, what are some of the things that you've heard? The sounds of rescue. Mm. What are some of the things that you've smelt? The smells of rescue. What are some of the things you've touched even with rescue gloves on. And I've added one to that. What about the silences where you go into a situation, might be a car crash or, or whatever it is, and there's no sound because, you know, the, the dear souls there have lost their lives. So the sight, sound, smells and touches and silences are called the sensory stimuli. Now, let me tell you that one of the most beautiful sounds I've ever heard in my entire career was <laughs> Debbie started to breathe on her own when I opened the airway. Mm. Oh, what a relief that was because I couldn't get into her yeah. to give her expired air, resuscitational mouth to mouth, as we call her mouth to nose. I couldn't get in. So for her to start breathing spontaneously was just amazing. I'll never forget the feeling of relief of um, seeing her start breathing. Her colour got better. Her general consciousness got a bit better, although she was still confused, as you would imagine. One minute you're standing in a train. And by the way, Debbie gave her seat to a lady. And that's where Debbie was standing up in the vestibule of the train. That darling lady that she gave the seat to was killed instantly, sadly. Mm. And Debbie was uh, up the end, got crushed in, into that circular configuration. So that was a beautiful sound I will never forget as long as I live. Well, um, Gary, you, you know Debbie's name. Um, yeah. How, what, did she survive or anything? Um, what's the story? Because you mentioned the other lady in the chair um, who you helped yeah. before. Um, yeah. You know, these are specific stories. I just want to pull that out a bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, look, um, uh, when I opened Debbie's airway, I did what we call a tip of the head to the tip of the toe examination to see what injuries she had. And she had injuries in every, what we saw, what we call compartment. It has a head, closed head injury, closed chest injury, and abdominal and pelvic and legs were fractured. One of them was just about amputated in the accident. So I had to reach down and stop the bleeding of the femoral artery and vein at the same time. Thankfully, they weren't bleeding too badly but I had to uh, stop the bleeding and hold her airway open at the same time. So then we got medical help in and we started the rescue of Debbie and the others. And they were really, it took us, just to give you an idea, and the listeners, took us 10 hours to get 10 people out. So that'll give you some idea of the, 
medical and entrapment needs that they had, Steve. But a very significant thing happened. We were just about not far from getting Debbie out and she was complaining about some abdominal pain. And, um, and when, when we examined her, there was something wrong in the lower, in the pelvic region, obviously an injury of some sort. And her, the muscles of her abdomen were solid as a rock. And they, they, your six pack acts like a curtain that comes across and gets very hard to protect the injury in the abdomen. Could be blood, mm. gas, or even bowel contents. Could be anything like that, air. And so she looked at me and she said, I know there's something wrong down there in my pelvis. And uh, she said, do you think I will ever be able to get married and have a baby? Now, that, I don't know, that came out of left field. And it sort of got me by surprise. And it showed the gravity. I thought, goodness. And I didn't say this to Debbie at the time, but I said, said to myself, Debbie, you're going to be very blessed to survive this and not die, let alone get married and have a baby. And I just replied to her, I said, Debbie, only God knows. And I just want to say to the listeners, there's some situations in our life that we don't have any knowledge of. We don't know the future of some situations. And, and so we've got to know that God knows. And I often say, in respect, God's a know-all. He knows everything. And so if he knows, then we can trust him with it, even if we don't know. And the Bible talks about living by faith, not by sight. In other words, if we look around us, our lives can be a mess. But by faith, he can see us through that. So I said to Debbie, only God knows. Well, we got her out and she was rushed by military helicopter to the hospital, went into operating theatres for a long period of time. And, uh, and I, got the, I was still at the scene, of course, and we got out those who were remaining alive. And then overnight, and this is another amazing thing, they used jackhammers, I mean big machine jackhammers, not the ones that blokes use, and they were tap, 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 tap all night breaking up the bridge and li- lifting it off in segments. I was in one of the damaged carriages right beside that and I slept. I was so exhausted physically, wow. and I suppose some of it was a mental exhaustion too because it's a high level of responsibility to keep people alive. And so myself and the other rescue blokes, we slept while that thing went tap, 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 tap all night breaking up the bridge. And in the morning, we uh, they lifted the slopes off and then it was our job with our forensic services to recover each of those dear souls that had lost their lives there. Wow. Now, just continuing on with Debbie, this is going to be stunning. But after we'd finished at Granville, we went on um, doing rescues, as we did, and it was about, I think, 18 months to a year later. Uh, I got notified by the Commissioner of Police that I was to go on a show called Where Are They Now? Okay. So I went on the show and... Uh, I was in the green room, which is out the back of the studio, where they set me down and give you a cuppa. And then they brought me into the studio, and, and there was people standing and clapping, and, and uh, Peter Luck said something like, uh, Gary Raymond, the hero of the Granville train disaster. And next minute, this beautiful, tall young lady on a walking frame came up to me. 
And we cuddled and cried and she whispered in my ear, it was Debbie. She whispered, thank you for saving my life. And I whispered back, it was worth it. Wow. Now, I was aware of someone behind me. I looked around and there's this young lady holding a baby. And they handed the baby to me from, you know, from memory. And then I remember Debbie saying, this is my daughter, Shelby. And that's my husband, Steve, sitting down there. Now, you might remember, Steve, underneath there, when she said, Can, will I ever be able to get married? And that, I said, only God knows. She looked me straight in the eye with a beautiful, joyful smile. She said, Gary, God knew. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And it was just this wonderful little miracle coming out of this mess. And I keep in touch with them. And uh, I was only talking to Debbie on the phone a few days ago. Wow. And Steve... And Shelby's growing up, and Shelby's got a lovely boyfriend. And guess what he's doing? He graduated in the police academy on Friday. Wow. And so Shelby, the little miracle baby, her husband-to-be, is going to be a police officer. I don't know how to respond to that. That's just, that's wonderful. That really is. Yeah. Um, Where to from here? I mean, how many stories like that have you had? I mean, that's just one story from... From the disaster, have you had uh, many others from that particular incident? Uh, yeah. Oh, look, you're right. So one of the young ladies that were trapped under there, her name is Erica Watson, and she's married now. But she, her, she was just about to go into the Australian ballet. Now, for a ballerina to be crushed and trapped, she had multiple fractures in her legs. And sometime during the the whole rescue, she said to me, you've seen my injuries, will I ever be able to dance again? And I said, "Uh, look, only God knows. Now, it sounds like a throw-off line, but I use it often, you know, sincerely and respectfully and deeply, that only God knows. And we've got to trust him because he's got all knowledge of our lives and the world and he's promised You know, it's a God of justice, our wonderful creator God, uh, who made us and knows us, that we can trust him in all of those things. So anyway, we got her out, and uh, by the look, she had multiple fractures, and I thought, goodness, you know, you'll be fortunate to live, let alone uh, dance again. I didn't say that, I just thought of it. Anyway, so she was rescued, and it was uh, a few years after Granville, I think it was around 19... 80 or somewhere around there. I got a phone call from Erica. Ring, ring, ring. Hello, Gary Raymond, police rescue. She said, oh, it's, uh, it's Erica Watson. Hey, how you going? Lovely to hear from you. How's your rehab been going? And, you know, how's your fractures and how's your life? Hey, it's lovely. And she said, uh, oh, I'm dancing again. I said, you what? Oh, and you know what I thought? I thought, oh, she's delusional or she's having a mental health issue. Dancing again with what I saw, her legs were like jelly with a number of fractures and, and so on and and soft, soft tissue damage. And I said, oh, oh, you're dancing again. That's fantastic. Um, how did that happen? Expecting her to talk about rehab. And she said, oh, I'm still in a wheelchair but I'm dancing oh, wow. in the Lord with joy. Didn't see that one coming. And I said, oh, 
oh, right, okay, so wow, tell me about that. She said, I've never felt so much joy and I'm really in the spirits, in my soul, I'm dancing still from my chair. And uh, and then I said, wow, what happened? She said, well, on Thursday the 29th of November 1979, I surrendered to Jesus and gave my life to him and thanked him for what he did on the cross for me. Well, you know, Steve, I nearly dropped the phone. I said, Erica, that's the same day that I surrendered to Jesus and gave him my life and obeyed his calling. So that was two years after the uh, event of the crash. That's right. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was what they call, uh, we'll talk about that later, I guess, but I was what they call a believer but not a receiver. Yeah, okay. I believed in God's existence. I believed that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, but I'd never, ever, ever accepted in my heart what he'd done on the cross. So I was, you know, never received what he'd done on Calvary for me. So, And so Debbie and I and our brother and sister in Christ, and even though we were good people, but we know that'll never save anyone, you can be the best person on earth but reject Christ or just be, I guess... Um, nonchalant about him and and there we were rescuer and victim on the same day in different ways circumstances and places surrendered to the lord isn't that amazing well, we're going to stop it right there because I tell you what, there's more to come next time. Uh, I feel like we've uh, covered so much this episode. Uh, you know, whether or not it be listening to Gary uh, talking about uh, you know crawling through chairs, talking about Debbie, this uh, lady that he rescued. Um, you know, going and having a look under the carriages, seeing the distances and the confined spaces they had to work on. How many people were there? Um, there's so much that was going on there in that episode, and I really hope you enjoyed listening to it. But uh, do come back again next time for part two with Gary Raymond. We are going to hear a lot more of his story, and uh, there's going to be a lot more details that you probably haven't heard as well from the Granville train disaster. Don't forget to tell your friends about this podcast as well. It's for rescuers by rescuers so if uh, you've got anybody that you would like to nominate to have an interview and a chat about a job that you've done i'd love to hear from you uh, you can do so at our website arpodcast.org fill in all the details and uh, i'll get back in touch with you as well but uh, that's it for now until next time i'm steve monroe and bye for now uh roger stand by yeah police have been This is the Australian Rescue Podcast.